I got it. When I first heard about Dave being trapped in a maze. One, two, three, four. I built a labyrinth. Can you believe it? Dave is trapped in a cardboard maze in his living room and he can't get out. Welcome to Dave Made a Minute, the podcast where a whole bunch of us are exploring the film Dave Made a Maze one minute at a time. The twist. Many of the participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. Here's your host from the Groundhog Day Project and Michael Myers Minute, Robert Black. Minute one is a flash forward to the interview we will see in more detail in minutes 45 to 47. The titular Dave, Nick Thune, is explaining to documentarian Harry, James Urbaniak, his motivations for creating the maze we will not really get to see until minute 13. And Dave is concerned that he is coming across angry or spineless. Minor note, this minute contains bits from three different minutes later, so the editing is a little different, and at least one line of dialogue exists here that does not exist later. As you will see, this minute may just represent the footage later edited by Harry for some sort of public screening, but let's get on with it. To tackle minute one, here is, well, me. I didn't want to give opening or closing titles to anyone who hadn't seen the film, but I do have a guest, the film's director, Bill Watterson. You come home, there's a giant maze in your living room. You're like, what the? There's a giant maze in my living room. I've heard of people rearranging the furniture, but this is wackadoodle crazy. You give me a sense of that. This doesn't make any sense. It's like a fucking cocktail party in here. Can I get a few words from you before you go? I don't have much to say about minute one since it will come back in minutes 45 to 47, but there is one important quote you should hear. Dave tells Harry, I built something because I wanted to build something. And if I could just finish it, I just know that it would, it would be great. It would, or true, or real. And tertiary, tertiary, I might be responsible for the people that. And the minute ends. But I'm here with Bill Watterson, not that Bill Watterson, director of Dave Made a Maze. Your interview is going to be in minute one, so my first question is actually about minute one. Why start with the interview? I like that question a lot. I like that question a lot. That was actually an idea of the editors. Um, we showed them an early draft. They, they were excited about the movie very early on. David Egan is our editor. If he had a minute of free time in his life, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you, but <laughs> um, they just had two kids and they, they make, he and his wife both edit and they, they make a lot of movies, but they read the script. I, I told David, uh, so I've, I've got this movie. It's got, it's got stop motion. It's got puppets. Um, it's got some geek stuff. I think we're going to have a wrestler in it. And he's like, so you're making a movie for me. <laughs> uh, and when I knew that he, he was that much the target audience, then I started begging him to edit it with me. And right from the, out of the gate, um, was very committed to the story and invested. And uh, that was one of their ideas, which is a great editing idea. Start it there. And so it, it went into the script. It's not something we discovered in the, in the room. And I think it works really well for two reasons. One, 
It's an unconventional script in that Dave is trapped in the maze for, for so long that you don't see your lead actor for a significant part of the first act. No. His name's in the title and you don't see him. So it, by starting there, you at least get to know him more and really see his face and, and get a bit of empathy. It also, I thought it bought a little bit of patience from the audience because we're in a fantasy place with weird sounds and sound is traveling oddly. Uh, and if you start there, you're like, okay, the audience knows, okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get in the maze and it's going to be weird. Um, and I thought that might buy a little more patience so we could spend a little bit more time in the living room before we got to the fantasy space. Just thought it might buy some audience patience. And then when we relive that moment later in the film, the movie catches up to that moment. We get to see more how it's affecting Annie and Gordon and the people very close to him. Because we've already, we already know what he's going through. And now we can see how what he's going through is affecting the people that he loves. And that is so much what the movie's about. So I, basically, we got to have our cake and eat it too. We got to really live with Dave in that moment and get to learn a lot about him. And then when the moment comes around again, we got to really be with the people in his life. So kind of accomplished a lot of things for us. I noticed that this is, by the way, uh, for listeners, this is a preview of minute like 45 through 47. This is an edited <laughs> right. version of what we see later. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I actually thought it might have come in from come from uh, Steve Sears because in the commentary, he says he used to edit like reality television interviews. Yeah. Yeah. That Well, that moment, uh, that moment is all Steve. The, the dialogue, the, the, the Harry off, off camera trying to craft the interview and not letting the, the subject just speak honestly. All the, the stuff about, uh, you know, in your own words and, and you know, d d they won't hear my voice. So when I answer, when I ask you a question, put the, put the question in the response, you know, all that stuff. That's classic reality television. Um, so the moment is 100%. Uh, Steven, the idea to open the film with it came, came from the editing team before we even got in the editing bay, which, which was really impressive. And we, we tried a few different things. We actually tried some, some of the footage from Annie's interview when, when Harry interviews her and we went back and there was a, a version of the film that opened with a back and forth and tried to sort of equalize screen time for Dave and Annie, which actually I thought was really interesting and cool, but it wasn't right for the movie. We had longer versions of being with Dave. I, I thought it was, it was only interesting intellectually, but I thought it would be interesting to open the movie with, ah, everyone is assholes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's too, you can't open a movie with someone that you want the audience to like yelling at you. You're just, you're just not going to be on his side. So we, we played with a lot of different things. And if you, Back to back, the opening of the film with the moment when it comes around in the movie, it actually isn't the same. No. It's, it's a lot the same, but we trimmed it because you're hearing it a second time. So we trimmed the speech down. Some of Harry's lead up to it is, is outtakes from different things. But, uh, I don't know. I think it works. It's, it's, it's a, not a gag, but it's a, I hope it's not a crutch. I hope it doesn't feel like a crutch. I, I really like the choice. Um, but I, I do know it's something a lot of movies do do choose to do. So hopefully, I don't I don't feel like I'm I don't seem like I'm just copying a trend. It, it felt it felt like it came from purely a narrative place. Yeah, I think at the big, like seeing it for the first time, it feels weird. 
looking back after seeing the movie, it makes sense because it ties into the camera crew and the setup of sort of interactive film. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true of a lot of the movie. <laughs> the first time through, you're like, this is weird. Uh, and then the second time through, you can see how intentional everything was. You know, in the edit, there, there was magic on set. There were things that happened that, that couldn't ever have been planned. But the edit was, we had a lot of time to cut it because we, we were independently funded. So we didn't have a studio release date or anything pushing on our back. We could really just sit there and examine every frame and put everything we want in and take everything we don't want out. Which is what you're supposed to be able to do. But uh, a lot of people don't get that luxury when they're trying to make something. No. The second question is, why include the documentary crew at all? I mean, I have my understanding of it, but I'm wondering about motivation on your side. I would actually love to hear your understanding of it. And I promise I won't retrofit my answer <laughs> based on your, your, your interpretation. <laughs> well, mine comes down to something I just said about it being interactive and like the perspective seen later. That scene only exists because this is a movie. Mm -hmm. No matter how Dave's maze works, no matter how complex it is, the maze and Dave are interacting with us. And this camera crew, for me, it feels like the entire movie is doing that same thing. It's acknowledging it's a film the entire time. Mm. Because if we can buy into that, we become part of this entourage that is escaping it, figuring out how to deal with like a metaphorical maze of our own lives. Right. There's a, there's a lot of that in there. This is to reference the, the very end of the film, but the camera pans around the gang as Harry goes to each one of them um, who survived uh, and sort of gives, gives them a, gives them an attaboy, pats them on the back for their work in his movie. <laughs> and you want it to feel like the camera is going to keep panning around and catch you. Yeah. And, you know, say, and I'll, and have James Urbaniak say, and I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, we talked about that in the filming of that scene. Like, we're, the audience is the fifth Beatle, the, the seventh Goonie. I don't remember how many Goonies there were. Because the audience went on the journey with them. We took, we, we factored that into how the camera brought you into the world and whose eyes we saw. We introduced new things through and, and, and how we sort of laid out the Reese's pieces for the ET audience to follow them and go with us because it required an incredible suspension of disbelief. Um, it required you to leave a lot behind to go on the journey. And a lot of people aren't going to go on the journey and this is not the movie for them. Uh, I, I knew like 50% of the people who are going to see this are going to be like, I don't get it. I don't like it in the first five minutes. I was like, great. I didn't make it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I made it for the people who are like, I got to get in that maze. And yeah, there's, there's a separate, there's, I, I can't claim this to be deliberate on my part. There's a separation, a certain separation that the film crew provides. So it's like, okay, let's examine this. Let's restate this moment to try to see to, for clarity's sake. Um, let's question the reality of this because the audience is probably questioning at this moment. The, the very simple answer is, as Stephen mentioned, he was working in that world and he writes very honestly from what he's experiencing and feeling in the moment, which is why his writing is unique. 
so by the time the script was in my lap and it was my charge to take care of, those guys were there. Uh, and I loved them. So I, did, I didn't question it too much. But the one thing I do really love about it is Dave's not the only creative. No. Annie's not necessarily a creative type, but he has these creative friends who are also wanting to make and wanting to do and wanting to build and wanting to generate. If it were just him and a bunch of stockbrokers, that's a totally different movie. But there's that wonderful moment. Uh, I, I don't know which minute of the podcast it'll be in, but um, Harry is the one who says, basically calls Dave out and says, you don't have to fail if you never finish anything. Yeah. And that's a gut punch to any creative person. And when we wrote it, we were both like, ah, oh, fuck. I mean, the, the second we wrote it, we're like, well, we just called ourselves out. Right. If we don't actually make this movie, we've given ourselves a get out of jail free card. <laughs> but now that we know it, we have to make the movie. <laughs> or, or we've failed ourselves because we've called out this fatal flaw, this weakness, this thing that drives creatives crazy, keeps them up at night, keeps them from being who they could be. We put our finger on it. Harry put his finger on it. And if Harry weren't a creative type, if he weren't an ambitious creative person, he couldn't relate to that. He couldn't vocalize that. He couldn't call Dave out on it. I mean, Annie could too. And there's a, there's a deleted scene where she kind of does. And it felt like a repeated beat, which is why it's a deleted scene. But I think it's more powerful coming from Harry because he can relate. I mean, how many, how many unfinished projects does Harry have? Yeah. Is he ever even going to edit this footage? You know? Although one one day I will <laughs> bring James back and have him do a voiceover and cut together all of the docu footage. Oh, that would be fun as a as like a as fifth anniversary, tenth anniversary uh, DVD extra, and actually have Harry's <laughs> documentary like combined with really bad stock footage and like hyper poetic in the world but not of the world. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> terrible <laughs> James Urbaniak classic voiceover. So you were just talking about who was the creatives. Annie is in their period film. Should we assume she used to be a creative like them, but isn't anymore? It's interesting. The early drafts of the script had Annie being an actress. We all decided it was a lot more interesting if she came from a totally different world. And it was harder for her to understand Dave. And she might have more patience for what Dave's going through because she can't necessarily relate. Huh. So she's trying to... Uh, unpack his mind and get through his own his maze to get to him and help him it's just more interesting but what i love about her doing it anyway even though she's not an actress first of all it allowed us for her to be terrible <laughs> which was wonderful <laughs> um but secondly she's just she's a gamer she's willing yeah. you know we always i we one of the descriptions of, and it's, it's why we leaned into some of the playing card stuff of course it has a wonderful alice in wonderland element to it but the reason that, that some of the king and queen images really stuck with us and went all the way to the zoetrope at the end was that um one of the early descriptions of dave and annie's relationship is that he is this you know wannabe builder of worlds and Annie is the queen of every one of his fantasy kingdoms because he loves her. And she says yes and plays along because she loves him. But she's got her, obviously, she's got her limits. Yeah, especially at the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah. Or she'd, or she'd be a very weak character. And I, I have to uh, uh, credit Mira Rohit Kambani for doing such an amazing job. It, it, 
there's a degree to which I, I felt like I was letting her down because I knew what Annie wasn't. <laughs> she couldn't be a nag. She couldn't be a pushover. She couldn't be this. But I wasn't necessarily telling her who she was. But I know in, in interviews and things since Mira has said that gifted her with letting Annie be a person, yeah. a real person, and not something so utterly simple and, and, you know, one note. Like, she's a badass, or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever awful thing you read in the script when you're a woman auditioning and you're like, oh, God, kill me. You know, by, by knocking down some of those things that she's not, it, what, what it left her with was... A, a, a real human being to to embody and she did it brilliantly like yeah, she's, she's great yeah she has moments where she's lost her patience and doesn't come across as a nag she has moments where she's willing to forgive and doesn't come across as a pushover personally i mean i i, I happen to love the performance and love the film so I, I understand there might be people who don't agree but um i i just couldn't i i, I couldn't be happier with with what she brought to life it, it was just it was a fine fine line and she walked it brilliantly i think maybe the balance at the beginning of leaving dave out of it helps with that too because we're in her situation we see this box and we're like why can't this guy come out what's wrong with this person yeah so you put us in her boat right away yeah and that was that was intentional that was the the cinematographer jonathan bowl and i talked about that a lot like this is annie's moment this is annie's scene it's why the audience sees the magic of the maze on annie's face first mm, yeah um and almost exclusively i mean we shot we shot some coverage for that moment uh because we had some gags and we're just having fun with the cast but it's like no, no 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 this is annie's this is annie's moment because it's been her movie it's been her experience she's had this ask the questions that the audience has she, you know, we, there were versions, I think in the cut and definitely in the script where we saw inside the maze sooner. And it took the, it took the life out of that, it took the air out of that balloon of, of like Annie is speaking for us. She's got our sense of logic, our sense of discovery, our sense of inquiry. Um, and if you show too much inside the maze too soon, the, the power of that went away. So we stalled, we stalled it until that that moment of I miss you where the audience just really wants the two of them and they want each other to be able to connect. So we let the camera connect them by showing you Dave lost deep in there for the first time. But that's, yeah. that, that might be 10, 15 minutes into the movie. I don't, I don't even know. We don't see inside the maze. Uh, uh, well, she, they go in in minute 15. I forget when we see him. I think it's minute 13 that we see him. Yeah. Minute 13. But she does great. Just interacting with the side of the box. She leans down and has personal conversation with the cardboard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, we had Nick, thankfully, he was he was also very, very willing. We had him with us on set for all of those uh, takes. Um, and he was, some, sometimes he actually laid in in there. But a lot of times he was off this the set, behind the set, which also worked for him. I don't think it was necessarily fun for him because he was separated from us. But it was helping with his frustration and his, like, you know, what the character was going through. I can't be there. I can't see you. I can't connect with you. That's exactly what was happening to Dave. So, and it was happening to Nick. And <laughs> I love this. Uh, at one point, James, because, you know, Nick was off in a back corner. And it was James' first day on set, I think, or maybe second day. And it was pretty chaotic. We had, it was a small space. We didn't have a lot of time to get to know each other. We, I met the actors in person with the exception of Nick and the people I had pre-existing relationships with. I met them on set as they were getting in their costume. Huh. 
Like I met James Urbaniak in his wardrobe fitting wow. the day before we started shooting his scenes. There were no table reads. Some of the people like Scott Krinsky and Scott Narver, uh, I had known for a while, Tim, Tim Nordwind. I've known those guys for a while, but the bulk, I had a face FaceTime meeting with Mira and Nick came by the build, the build space to be like, can these guys pull this off? <laughs> and then when he saw what we were building, he's like, oh yeah, they totally can. But for the most part, I was, you know, I was meeting all the rest of the cast in, in the moment, which is, it's kind of crazy. Oh, no, I, I had met um, John Morrison. And, you know, it's a testament to how great everyone was that they were willing to, to do that and willing to trust us to, to, to pull it off without having to vet us. They just showed up. We're like, let's do it. But the point of all this is that uh, James went up to Nick and was like, ah, just so you know, um, I've got a hard out tonight of 6 p.m. And Nick's like, great. I'm the star of the movie. I don't know. I, I don't know how you want me to help you with that. <laughs> I mean, you didn't say that. Nick would never say that. But <laughs> it's just like that's how that's how chaotic things were. <laughs> so how how was I know as director, you're not the one building stuff, but how was the like basic structure of building a set and then filming in a set, tearing it down like that scheduling going for you? The the schedule was so airtight my first ad alexander armero and the dp i I, the schedule and john charles meyer i am still amazed that the schedule worked because we only had 20 days and we had a single space and i'm sure you've heard from the others that uh someone called it a daily burning man because the sets Mm -hmm. most of the sets weren't built yet at the start of the day they were in progress and we'd you know do a, a rehearsal and hear the scene out loud for the first time in a half-built space, send the actors to hair and makeup, finish building the space, get the actors out there, shoot the scene while building the set we were going to shoot later that day next to them, 10 feet away. Do the same for the next set, wrap the actors, and then destroy everything at the end of the day for the maze collapsing montage. And also because we needed the space for the next day's yeah. scenes, which took place in other rooms that hadn't exist that didn't exist mm-hmm. yet. Um, I don't recommend that. <laughs> it was it, it was our only option because of a limited space, um, and the, the space we had to build in the in the four or five weeks, if it was even that, building up to shooting couldn't accommodate full standing sets, just pieces set. Uh, like you know, we had the origami head, but we didn't have the origami room. We had the we had the axe that decapitates Jane, but we didn't have the walls of the room that she would be in. It was very challenging because we had shot lists and ideas that we wanted. And then we got there and we're like, the space isn't big enough. We got to make this up on the fly. A lot of credit, obviously, to cinematographer uh, John Bull, just using these great wide angle lenses to make the rooms look way bigger than they were. If you were on set in that origami room, you would never believe the truth of how small it was yeah they were on their knees right the actors were on their knees because we didn't have the height that we needed uh it was it was like 18 feet it's 18 feet (laughs) (laughs) it's completely absurd um but you slap the right lens and you get your actors to commit and you have enough beautiful artwork in the frame that gives it life and you're just you're on board you know yeah Uh, but it's not a great way it's not a great way to work because we had to do so much on the fly that scene in particular, if you talk to anybody, that was the hardest day on set. Um, the origami room? Yeah. Yeah. There, it's good that I'm not uh, potting with you for that minute because <laughs> I, I, just, I don't know that I could handle the flashbacks. Uh, I mean, certain 
prop gags weren't working, no, no one's fault, but certain things that we were expecting to happen weren't happening and we couldn't figure them out from a VFX standpoint. So I literally had to be like, okay, I'll be back in five minutes. And I had to go and rewrite the scene to, to make the bird come out in the middle instead of fly down from the opera box. And then in order to accommodate that, we had to completely change the set list to make sure the camera reads that there's supposed to be two, but there isn't. Then we had to have, what, where's the second one? I add that dialogue, you know, just it had to be rewritten while we were two hours behind. That whole scene was shot between lunch and dinner or lunch and wrap half a day. And, you know, on a real movie, that'd be, you'd have four days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, on a, on a, when I say real movie, I mean on a massive budget movie. Right. Um, you know, ideally, <laughs> you'd have at least a day. Oh, thank you. You'd have at least a day or two to be to do an action-heavy scene in a, in a major set. That's a major set piece in the movie, and we had half a day. And at the end of the day, the walls fell down. The walls came down. I mean, it makes you it makes you really trust uh, and rely on your script supervisor. Amy Arder was incredible. There was a brain trust. It was the AD. Alex, uh, the DP, John, and the script soup, Amy, and I were like, there's no coming back. This room will never exist again. So if we say we're done with this scene, we have to be done for good because these walls are coming down. Wow. Um, so it makes you be really honest. It makes you cut the movie in your head while you're shooting, make sure every moment is covered. And uh, you just got to have faith when the, when the four of you get together and say, yeah, we're good. You're, you're, you're plunging the dynamite, <laughs> you know, you're pushing the plunger on the Acme dynamite machine for that, <laughs> for that room to be destroyed. So it's not how people usually work. <laughs> for listeners, the origami room will be minutes 20 and 21. Um, but for you, Bill, I have a follow-up question is, mm -hmm. How did that feel? I mean, I know a movie takes a certain amount of time to make and then you kind of put it behind you. You're doing that every day with this movie, tearing down the sets and things don't exist. How does that feel? Um, I didn't have the luxury of looking back. Uh, I literally got like, there's one day when I was like, here, take a picture of me and blah, blah, blah. And it was the last day after we called rap on the last shot. Huh. It was the first time I told anyone to take a picture of me and someone else. Um, there just wasn't time. Uh, I would have loved to have gotten, you know, a beautiful photo of myself in what what we called the Kubrick corridor. It's like a hexagonal. Is it hexagonal? I called it octagonal for a while, but I think it's only six sides. It's six, yeah. Yeah. Um, beautiful sort of space age hexagonal. With all the holes. Uh, yeah, with all the holes. It's just cardboard, but it looks gorgeous. Um, and it, you know, is reminiscent of 2001. And I personally thought it was more reminiscent of the, uh, when Luke is walking through the bowels of Bespin in, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, Empire, but regardless, we called it the Kubrick corridor. Uh, I would have loved a picture of me in that thing, but it was, it literally existed for three hours. Wow. There just wasn't, there wasn't even time to look back and think about it. And this happens on any movie, you know, you're, you got the 10 things, Hopefully they become five as I get bigger and bigger crews. But you've got the 10 things you're juggling to get the shot in the moment. And then someone comes up to you and is like, hey, can we talk about tomorrow? <laughs> um, you know, it's just like, ah, that, that's making movies. That's just how it is. So there just was never time. We, we couldn't afford to go into overtime with our actors. So our actors only had eight-hour days. It's, it's really a miracle. If we had one weak link on that crew, 
the movie wouldn't have gotten made. It would have it would have unraveled completely. I just I, I am always amazed at how lucky I I am. We all are that that it worked because there was no. We had a hard out of the studio space at the end of twenty days, so it's not like we could even like quick raise more money so we can have another day. No, we had to be out. We were sweeping the floors on the on the twenty first day. So how does it? All I remember is being really like bouncing back and forth between being really stressed because I didn't want anyone to know how freaked out I was and what we were really up against, and then just being elated at the way these moments came together and what everyone was capable of doing and just how overwhelmed I was that this many people showed up for bad paychecks <laughs> or no paychecks to bring this thing to life that, that Steve and John and I thought was cool. Yeah. So many people showed up and brought, brought a games that it was like, Oh, that train has left the station guys. <laughs> You know, get on board. It's going to be a wild ride. But, uh, you know, from, from minute one, like the train had left the station. There was just no going back. But that also meant there was there was almost no reflecting. When I get together now with anyone from the movie, we have a few beers. It's like it's like war buddies. We just and I don't mean to equate myself with something as, as significant. And, right. And, right. Uh, that's not that's not the point. The, the point is more just the the level of camaraderie, tears streaming down our faces as we tell each other stories uh, of what it was like in those in in the trenches of making this movie, like ba- the battle scars. You know, it's just <laughs> it, it's. It, I'm so glad we had that together, and we will always have that together, and it will always be hilarious. What what we went through to get this thing made is just is utterly wild. And I'm sure everyone feels that way about every project. For me, being a first-time director and it being so ambitious, you know, ensemble cast, comedy, but horror, yeah. uh, you know, like genre blending, practical effects. Like, it's a lot to take on for a first feature. You know, a lot of people make a movie, I got three friends and one of them has a cabin and we're going to do a love triangle. It's like, yeah, that sounds really hard. <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to shit on other people's work. No, no, but, no. Um, you know, this, this was not that. Let me put it that way. This was not that. There were significant challenges in pulling off something like this um, for the money spent on something like that. <laughs> um, and we'll just always have it knowing that we did it. We stuck the landing. We yeah, we did it. I'm still amazed. Considering I'm doing this, I agree. <laughs> I, ca- I can't begin to thank you, by the way. Uh, I probably should have said this before we got going, but and and you can edit it out if it's too mushy. But I, I can't begin to thank you for taking an interest in this and just letting it affect you and letting it in your 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 brain. Um, no, yeah, it's just it 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 makes it worth ha- worth having done. It's terrible grammar. <laughs> uh, yeah, it makes it, it it that's it's moments like that when I'm like, okay, I, I am glad we did that. I am glad we sacrificed as much as we did to get this thing made because somebody cares, you know, and that's just makes it all worth it. And yeah. And I've been listening to some of the minutes that other people have been recording and it's like pushing was, was it paying it forward kind of thing? Hmm. Like they're people eager to watch the whole movie because they've watched part pieces of it and tried to figure out what it's about. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. I can't wait. It's, it's fun so far. 
Now, um, listeners won't know what this is yet, but I have a question for you. Where is the weirdest place you found a bread roll? Oh, God. They would drop from the ceiling <laughs> with frequency. Uh, I know some people found some in their pockets. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I fell victim to that. They would just fall in front of the lens. Um, I must have a more specific. I literally just remember it raining bread rolls. <laughs> it, it's like it was like it's like suddenly we were on the set of Trouble with Tribbles. Nice. Like, where are they coming? Do we? Do we? Did we even have bread rolls at lunch today? How is this possible? <laughs> did you? Did uh, you have to ask Jonathan? Uh, Jonathan Bull. He he replaced. We had a wall of um, pictures of everyone on the cast, so you had everyone's okay. name and an image, so you could you know get to know everybody. And we just had a wall of it, and and I can send you this picture. Uh, at one point, <laughs> JB replaced Adam's headshot with a picture of a bread roll. <laughs> and it just said Adam Bush. And it was just a, a bread roll with Adam's face, like photoshopped. It's the it. way to remember him. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I've heard they were in people's bags, even like uh... ah, the bags, of course. Yeah, I, I I went lean. I just had a three ring binder. Okay. Um, that I constantly misplaced, and I'm like, I'm that director. I'm that idiot director who can never find his fucking binder. How did this happen? <laughs> I was a PA for years, so I, I knew I knew the, the world of set and was pretty proactive about not being the kind of director I didn't like. <laughs> but I was definitely the guy who couldn't find his fucking binder, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is, uh, so far, the people watching this for this podcast, no one has found a bread roll on screen yet. <laughs> yet. Yeah. I told them yet. to look out for them. They don't know what that means, but they're looking. There might there might be some Easter eggs in there. I mean, yeah. you can't you, you can't fix every, every problem. <laughs> no. Some things just sneak in there. But so far, I haven't had, found any really visual problems like that. I think in the commentary, I don't know if it's you or Steve, comment about the, the shoe rack, how it became a shoebox rack, and no one can tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it just blends in with everything else. Yeah. It's the kind of visual you won't notice. Exactly. I used that word intentional earlier and when we were talking about seeing it a second time. Yeah. It, it does pay off in its detail. There is a, there is a richness of detail. So sometimes I wonder, and this is something I'm working on just general in general as a director. I'm I'm wondering if I'm letting the camera see what it needs to see enough for the audience to to get everything that's there. Huh. You know, sometimes I just gloss over things because I know it's there. I think it's there, and it's technically in the frame, but it's I needed to give it its moment more. That's something I'm learning. Not that I think the movie would have been better if I did a close up of the shoe rack. I don't know if anyone would have cared. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, that is this wonderful thing that art department did for us that it's, you know, maybe if you see it on the big screen. <laughs> but also, on the other hand, you you deliver that richness of detail and on a subconscious level, it feels like a world. It, every single one of those things doesn't have to pay off in a first, second, or even third viewing or ever. It can still seep into an audience experience, even if it's not, if you don't shine a light on it, you know? Yeah, in in this format with multiple people participating, they might not notice Gordon's shirt changing. Right, exactly. They won't notice the enter sign changing colors. Right, and one of my favorite, one of my favorite things that we were tracking, and I'm like, this is going to be worth it gonna be worth it when it changes when it gets its first kill and it really and it changes from green to it's gonna be worth it yeah and dave's shirt changes colors in the last scene things they might not see 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I, for, you've, I forgot how much time you spent with the, the film. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> the, uh, the Gordon shirt changing is one of my favorites. And we did little, I love Gordon. We, we a description of his character was, uh, um, that he borderline asshole who probably plays a lot of video games. <laughs> um, and we just kind of ran with the video game thing with the t-shirt going from eight bit to 16 bit to whatever the 32 bit or, or real life. And then his theme music is almost all like old, uh, Atari style, like bloops and blips. Huh. Um, so we gave him little power ups every time his shirt changed, um, little video game power ups, but it's super subtle. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the sequel, he'll wear a green screen shirt. And I'll just have an animated thing happening the whole time. So every time we see him, it's their different. own scenes playing out on his on his chest every time. But yeah, it it had kind of a it it paralleled. You may have heard this before. Somebody may have talked about this before. But it paralleled his hero's journey. Yes. Um. You know, it's Dave's movie, but it's not like Gordon isn't growing. Um. And every time he does something heroic, he's rewarded with a power up until the hero, the video game hero on his shirt becomes him because he has done something heroic and self-sacrificing, which, you know, 10% of the audience may notice that it changes. Well, 20% of the audience may notice that it changes. They might not notice when. Yeah. Or why, you know? Yeah. But it's there. It's still there. It's still part of the world. It still matters. Um, and it gives me shit to talk about in podcasts. It does. He also gets the last line of the movie. Does he really? A, wait, what? Oh, that's the last line of the movie. Yeah, right. It is. Yeah. Nice. There's there's some screen time after that, but that's yeah. the last line of dialogue. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, there's a, there's some significant screen time after that. Um, Dave's shirt turning, uh, wearing a blue shirt at the end. I, I've talked about this before, but we definitely thought of um, blue as a very powerful color in our world. It's why the um, None of the characters are wearing blue. Jane is where wears sort of an exaggerated over the top sky blue and mm, she's yeah. the first to go. But none of the other characters wear wear blue. Um and we you know the the towel beach towels are all blue. The the Minotaur wears a beach towel as a cape and he's obviously very powerful and and the the blue towel is the only thing that stops the Minotaur so it's got power. There's also some sort of like shouldering your your own weakness that the minotaur does by wearing the towel as his cape but and the 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 center of the majora which is that'll be an interesting minute for someone who's never seen the movie um yes is is blue and all the whole idea was let's deny them the one thing they want more than anything which is to see the sky yeah and what color is the sky it's blue so the majora is a trap because it's showing them what they want to see which is blue which is really a color metaphor for freedom when you're trapped in a maze and going deeper and deeper underground what represents freedom better than blue sky so let's deny it nice except when it's a trap and then obviously when dave is finally free you know he wears a blue shirt he's offering a blue piece of candy to annie all these small things that you know they don't necessarily matter narratively and they might not even matter after you know that yeah but the movie's full of them and that makes making movies more interesting to me that's the stuff. That's the good stuff. This is worth looking closely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it, it comes from somewhere. It's not random. There's a lot of random stuff in the movie, of course. <laughs> and there are random accidents on set that end up making it in. Of course. And you have to be open to that and, and let things breathe. But I also, I also love thinking that thoroughly.
without you know without getting up my own ass. I, I try not to. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not interested in making pretentious movies, but I'm certainly interested in making thoughtful ones. Nice. Speaking of the Majora, <laughs> what happened to the boom operator when he got left behind? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I don't think Steve and I really connected it with the Majora because... Oh, I did. Right. Yeah, I know a few people have um, because the rooms change so much. Like the maze is always changing and growing. So there's, there's no saying that, you know, he took, he went back and ended up back where they were, you know, he obviously didn't touch or interact with it or he would have changed or turned to cardboard. Um, there are parts of him we, we can't see. Right. Good point. Very good point. Um, we just, we always joke about what, you know, one day another DVD extra might be, or like an animated DVD extra might be the boom ops side adventure. Nice. And like all the crazy trouble and like slides and traps and, swinging across cardboard vines like in in the in atari's pitfall or something like that <laughs> while holding the boom mic the entire time yeah oh exactly recording the whole thing because he never puts that down never he's a consummate professional well he puts it out once but only to help put the get the towel up <laughs> right right yeah we uh i think they were described in the script as um like at one point when he goes in the origami pit he's holding the boom over his head like a gi in the shit <laughs> We, and we we went all the way with that. Like we talked to Wardrobe about that. That's why he's wearing camel pants. That's why uh, the huh. the um, camera op has kind of a you know very a uniform. Um, it's like these are these are Harry's sh- sh- uh, soldiers, and they'll do anything to get yeah. shot for him. And he's their general, and that's why Harry has kind of an army jacket. Right, right. Um, you know, more stuff that might be interesting only to me, but. But I think it's I think it's got to be that you've got to think about these things. You've got to have these conversations. You've got to explore these things for the actor, for the wardrobe department. That that's giving direction and great moments for them. Like oh, the first thing he does after the maze collapses, you know, spoilers, is pick up the boom mic, even though it's broken. Yep, go right back to work. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of my favorite moments. You know, we cut right before all of us burst out laughing. <laughs> but that's he did a couple takes of it and. Both his and James's moments of coming out of the maze are just spectacular. Yeah, James is just crouched under a box. Yeah, and he just like flips it off and it's like, hmm, <laughs> classic. And that was James' first day shooting too. So huh. I was like, oh, I got to make him get under a box. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be under a lot of boxes as it goes. Yeah, <laughs> little did he know. <laughs> um, I asked about the bread rolls. So what story do you have for us then that we wouldn't have heard from someone else uh let's see there there's a story i've told but i, I don't think you would have heard it from anyone else because it was something that happened in my head <laughs> <laughs> um it was the first and this is appropriate for the start of the podcast it was the first shot of the first day first setup um and i was kind of like crouched the mon i'm six two so monitors are always too low for me so i always crouch to see them okay um because other people you know I'm, I'm not on shoots where there are like five monitors like we're all looking at the same monitor to try to fix shit so i crouched in front of the monitor very much very much like an umpire and uh super professional crew okay settle down everybody hold the work going for a take uh let's um roll sound sound is speeding 
great real camera, speed. And then the next thing that's supposed to happen is the director says, action. Yeah. Right? But I was just watching all this unfold, and there was this big, huge pause, and I was like, I'm Frank Durbin behind the plate <laughs> in The Naked Gun, and I don't realize that I'm supposed to call. Like, the pitch has come, and everyone's like, is it a ball or strike? And he's like, ball? <laughs> or I forget, maybe he calls a strike, I can't remember. But it was literally like, oh God, I'm the guy, I'm the guy, I'm supposed to call action. You know, it's just sort of taking it all in and amazed by all of it, and also used to being... I've spent 10 years on sets and I was never the guy that called action. Right. Um, so that's just a, yet another story of me being a total idiot. <laughs> There's a lot of them. So what are you doing now or have done since? Cause this finished a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. We had a theatrical run. It keeps getting new life, which is great. It's coming out in theaters in Japan in right. October, which is awesome. It's coming out in theaters in the UK in like maybe March of 2019. But it keeps keeps getting new life. It keeps finding new fans, which is just awesome. It makes me really happy. Um, there, let's see. I have written another movie, uh, an idea of Steve's. We worked on it together. Um, that's very Dave Made a Maze esque. Okay. And we are currently what's called packaging, like getting my my agents and managers to get actors that they rep that their companies represent to put together a package to then go out to get financing. Okay. Um, and I love that movie dearly. It's about a musician and it has monsters and Kung Fu and it's just crazy. Nice. I love it. Um, yeah. Don't go small. I have optioned a short story. Yeah, no, no. Um, I was supposed to write a $5 million movie and I wrote a $15 million movie, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. I've optioned a short story, a very heartbreaking short story that, I'm giving a very Gondry, Tim Burton sort of vision to that, that will have stop motion sequences and it'll have nice. wonderful sort of handcrafted outer space sequences. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Young, young female protagonist, not necessarily a female driven story, but it just happens to be uh, a, a young girl. Uh, and that one's, that one's heartbreaking. Every time I think about it, I'm like, oof, mm. weight of the world on these shoulders. <laughs> it's a very sad story, but, but one I, I, I need to tell. And in the short term, I've been out pitching a few TV shows, also in the very weird world. Lot, lots of, I did a music video that just came out for the band Jaja Technique, XXT. Yeah, I just saw that today. Yeah, it's uh, Tim Nordwin from, um, he's in the film, he's from the bass player from OK Go. He and the drummer have this wonderful art performance band with uh, an incredible lead singer, uh, and we did an all marionette music video at the Bob Baker <laughs> Marionette Theater that just came out that, that I love. I did another music video that's heavy and cardboard and, and puppets and miniatures. And that's, I don't know when that's coming out, but that's coming out soon. And then I'm just editing now this week. I'm editing uh, what in the industry that you call a sizzle, which is like a two or three minute presentation of what the show is going to be yeah. um, that you use to, to get the financing to sell the show. Um, and it's not my show, but I, I was hired to, to direct it. But it's a fantasy, fantasy puppets, animations. It's it's really crazy. And I, I did sign a non-disclosure agreement, so I don't think I can That's tell okay. you who it's for. <laughs> but if you're at all into comic books, even tangentially, you'd freak out. <laughs> the, the, the writer and the creator are like the concept art is by one of my favorite comic book huh. artists. And, and the writer is is an absolute legend and an Emmy winner in the animated space. Nice. Um, the, uh, the the um, DC Universe animated space. 
Um, so it's it's a very exciting project, and we just started editing today, and it's it's gorgeous. And then I can probably disarm all the traps, and then we can we can finish this maze. Who is with me? was me, mostly avoiding minute one of Dave Made a Maze. One more time, I would like to thank Bill for his time, and for so many emails back and forth and messages he forwarded to other guests you will hear in later episodes. Next time, on Dave Made a Minute, I will be telling you about the animated titles, and I will be talking with the film's producer, John Charles Meyer. Thank you for listening to Dave Made a Minute. Intro dialogue snippets were taken from Dave Made a Maze, directed by Bill Watterson, written by Bill Watterson and Steve Sears, and produced by John Charles Meyer. Intro music is Diversion by The Equals, featured in the film Dave Made a Maze, and Life Cycle of a Match by Parvis Decree. Outro music is Leaving This Godforsaken Place and Her Presence is Strong Here by Parvis Decree. Dave Made a Minute is a production of Lemming Drop Studio and all other featured podcast producers. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Dave Made a Minute. If you like what you hear, throw us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, and check out all of the participants' other shows to spread the love around. Again, thank you for listening. As long as we're all working together, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I need you to notify the families of everyone who died here today. Totally. Wait, what?